From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Ted Clark. This week, refugees from Syria's civil war receive a mixed reception in Germany. Afro-Brazilian religions are on the rise. And France moves closer to banning child beauty contests. According to the UN, more than six and a half million Syrians have been displaced by the civil war in their country. Germany has agreed to take in thousands of them. But they haven't received the warmest of welcomes. Right-wing extremists want Germany to close its doors to refugees, and some of those extremists are targeting a working-class neighborhood on the outskirts of Berlin. More from NPR's Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Chancellor Angela Merkel is asking her fellow Germans to welcome 5,000 Syrian refugees, but in Hellersdorf, few people appear to be heeding her call. Raucous protests by out-of-towners engulfed the East Berlin suburb weeks before the first Syrians arrived. There were demonstrations for and against refugees placed in an abandoned high school here. Many Hellesdorf residents say they oppose the protests, but they are not happy that their community is hosting refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, and other war-torn countries either. This blue-collar neighborhood filled with Soviet-era apartment blocks lacks the ethnic diversity seen in much of Berlin. Hellesdorf is also short on services and schools. So when government officials set up a refugee center here last month, people were upset. Resident Enrico Kiesa says his neighbors worried the newcomers will strain already inadequate services in Hellersdorf, especially if hundreds more move in. Another resident who gave only her first name, Nika, says she feels less safe walking around her neighborhood with the refugees here and accuses the male refugees of harassing women. Extremist factions are playing on such fears, especially during Germany's national election season. The right-wing NPD party has hung campaign posters in Hellersdorf featuring a photo of a blonde woman next to another woman whose face is covered with a black veil. The slogan reads, Maria, not Sharia, referring to Islamic law. Most of the refugees at the center are Muslim. Manfred Ruz of the anti-refugee pro-Deutschland group says the government has no right to force German communities like Hellersdorf to take refugees in. He argues that it's Syria's neighbors who should be helping the refugees and not Germany. While few Germans share his views, officials say they are encountering growing resistance to opening new refugee centers. That worries Monika Lücke, who is the Berlin Senate's commissioner responsible for refugees. Most of them are from Syria and Afghanistan, and they are heavily traumatized. They have gone through civil war. They have seen people and their families dying, and they have they, they, they have fear. And it's, it's not acceptable for them to be confronted with demonstrations like this. Lucas says officials in Berlin have no choice but to put refugees in places like the old school in Hellersdorf because of a major housing shortage here. But refugee advocates say the German government should have planned long ago for the refugees, given the fact the number of asylum seekers in Germany has doubled every year recently. In Hellersdorf, Diep Meiser is one of a group of activists who gather across from the new refugee center every day to show their support for the asylum seekers. 
everybody agrees that this is about the worst place you could put any human being in. This school was closed about five years ago because it was so rotten that the people said there is no financial way we can actually redo the school again. Now, five years later, they open the doors, move people in, form classrooms and tell them, well, you can live here. The few refugees who venture outside the center are too afraid to talk to reporters. Most of the neighbors steer clear of the activists. But one 80-year-old resident shyly approaches them with a question. Her name is Elsa Housing. She tells the activists she wants to donate stuffed animals, toys, and curtains to the people living at the school. Housing adds we should make it as easy as possible for the refugees. Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, NPR News, Berlin. Brazil has the largest black population outside Africa. For the first time, more than half of all Brazilians define themselves as black or mixed race. That's 97 million people. But those numbers have not translated into power, be it social, economic, political, or religious. However, a recent poll has shown a sharp uptick in the number self-identifying as followers of Afro-Brazilian religions, like Candomblé. We learn more about Candomblé from NPR's Lourdes Garcia Navarro. I recently went to a Candomblé ceremony in a crowded house of worship. They are waiting for the gods to come to them from the spirit world. It's a sacred festival day in honor of Omlu. The women wear white dresses with crinoline crossed with colorful belts and headdresses. The men are in lace pajama-style suits. For hours, they sing and dance in a circle. The room gets warmer, the chanting more intense. Suddenly, they are here. The Orishas have possessed the chosen among the faithful. These are the spirit gods, the deified ancestors who link humans to the other world. Those who have been taken over writhe and shout. They are led away and then returned dressed in beautiful, sparkling costumes depicting the aspect of the deity, the snake god Oshumare, Omulu, the Orisha of death. Candomblé came to Brazil on the slave ships of West Africa. Followers believe in one all-powerful god who is served by lesser deities. Each initiate has their personal guiding deity that acts as an inspiration and protector. There is no concept of good and evil, only individual destiny. Pai Nelson is the priest in this house of worship. He says today's ritual is one of purification. Candomblé was once very hidden, very isolated, he says. Candomblé wasn't accepted here. People always had a preconception about it because it was African. Black people aren't accepted in society here. We do animal sacrifice, so our religion is very different than any other, he says. People don't understand it. But there has been a recent push to change that. Sitting among the faithful here is Marcelio Costa, who is the commercial officer at a foreign consulate in Sao Paulo. He became an initiate a year and a half ago, and he says he's open about it. It's among Brazilians, yes. People understand better now, these days, you know. All my friends know my religion, every single one of them. I don't hide from no one. 
In the Afro-Brazilian Studies Department in the University of Rio, Ana Paula Alves Ribeiro listens to the group Meta Meta, which uses the rhythms and language of candomblé in their music. She explains that for some time now, musicians and artists have been influenced by the many Afro-Brazilian religions here, but it's only in the last few years that adherents of candomblé have made a push to be more widely recognized in other forums. In the census of 2010, there was a big movement within Candomblé called He Who Is, Say That He Is, meaning those who practice Candomblé should give that as their religion in the census. Candomblé, like its cousin Santeria, practiced in Cuba, is a synchronetic religion, meaning that many of the Orishas are also represented by Catholic saints, and Candomblé has absorbed many Catholic practices. So for much of its hidden history here, Candomblé practitioners would tell the government they were Catholics when they weren't. It was a way of protecting themselves from persecution. But after the fall of the military dictatorship three decades ago, Afro-Brazilian activists saw that instead of cowering in the shadows, Afro-Brazilian culture had to be put front and center. So the Afro-Brazilian religions start to organize to fight for their rights and against religious intolerance. In the new millennium, you start to see African religions holding their festivals out in the open, in the streets, not hidden in the basements. But it's a battle for recognition on many fronts. And there's a new challenge, the rise of evangelical Christianity. Almost a quarter of Brazilians say they identify as evangelical, while Afro-Brazilian religious followers are still a tiny fraction of the population, at less than 5%. Marcelo Monteiro sits in the open-air Tejero, or Candomblé Church, surrounded by palm trees and buzzing insects. Shrines to the various deities dot the area. He sings a West African Yoruba folk song about how no religion will stop them from practicing their faith. It's become a kind of battle cry, he says. Monteiro is a Candomblé priest who has started the first Candomblé political party, PPLE. With the growth of Pentecostal religions and their dominance in the halls of political power within Congress, we felt obligated to start our own political group. Mantero complains that much of the status Candomblé had gained is being lost again since evangelical Christianity swept Brazil. Afro-Brazilian shrines have been attacked by evangelical groups, and some of the evangelical churches call their religion devil worship. There is another reason, though, Montero thinks it's vital to have a candomblé party in Congress. Even though people of African descent are now more than half the population of the country, they are only 8% of the lower house of Congress. Only two out of 81 senators are black. At a Rio restaurant, we meet Jeanne Guinonde. She's a black activist and a candomblé practitioner who says the legacy of slavery can still be felt here in every part of life. Brazil was the last country to give up slavery in the region. She says the fight for equality is ongoing and protecting Afro-Brazilian religious heritage is part of that. It's important to highlight the huge importance of the black movements in pushing for the appreciation of diversity or religious plurality. Many people would like to get rid of the black population in Brazil and their beliefs, but we won't allow that. The 
its wedding day at a Candomblé house of worship. The bride and groom are led into the hall while family and well-wishers look on. As part of their push for legitimacy, the first legally binding weddings and baptisms are now being presided over by Candomblé priests. Pai Leonardo is conducting this wedding ceremony. We have the right granted by the Constitution. If we are recognized as a religion, we have to function like one. To be respected, we have to operate in public, to lose the fear we have had since slavery. Our religion is beautiful, he says. Up until now, we haven't existed in the eyes of the world. We need society, the government, the people here to recognize that we do exist, that we can take our place side by side with the other religions. Lourdes Garcia Navarro, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. Coming up, as Japan considers a free trade agreement, its farmers fear losing their way of life. France moves to ban child beauty contests, and Chinese developers build towns that mimic Paris and Venice. Japan has begun to emerge from more than two decades of economic stagnation. The government credits bold stimulus policies for the rebound. Now there's a proposal for the country to join a free trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, to help spur more economic growth over the long term. The move is facing stiff resistance from Japan's farmers. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has the story from Tokyo. I'm at the annual Rice Harvest Festival in Narita City, not far from Tokyo's main airport. Rice farmers are playing music as they ride on a large wooden cart with stone wheels, paper lanterns, and intricate carvings. From a distance, the cart seems to float through a sea of lush green paddy fields as the villagers pull it along with ropes. Rice farmer and local activist Takeshi Ogura hops off the wagon to talk. He says entering into the TPP would be a bad deal for Japan. Japanese agriculture is pretty costly, so we don't want the government to treat food as a commercial business. We want it to protect our food sovereignty. The TPP includes 11 nations bordering on the Pacific. Its members account for around 40% of global trade. But Mr. Ogura is very proud that he grows his own food and that he lives in a community that celebrates this tradition. He says that joining the TPP would threaten his way of life. The farmland and rice farming are at the core of our culture. They are linked to this culture through community festivals like this one. But if we stop cultivating the rice, this culture will be destroyed. The festival cart continues on its way down Narita's country roads. Mr. Ogura is a pretty typical specimen of Japanese yeomanry. He's over 60. He has to do sideline jobs to make ends meet, and his children are not very enthusiastic about following in his line of work. In recent elections, Mr. Ogura voted for the Communist Party of Japan. It was a protest vote, he says, to show that he was fed up with the main political parties because they refused to stand up and oppose the TPP. They pretend to listen to us, especially at election time. They make sympathetic faces, and they're kind of helpful. Some of the candidates promised to oppose the TPP, but they voted for it in parliament. 
Japanese rice farming is protected by a politically powerful agricultural lobby and import duties of more than 700 percent. It is also the least efficient farm sector among the developed economies. Jesper Cole is director of research at J.P. Morgan in Tokyo. He says Japan can get out of this predicament by having fewer people working on bigger farms and growing luxury food products for export. If Mr. Ogura were to switch to something called Koshi Hikari, which is the Lexus brand of rice, he could sell it for eight times the, what he can sell it in Japan to the department stores in the People's Republic of China. Meanwhile, he says, joining the TPP would allow Japan to import cheaper foreign rice, and that would save consumers money. The farmers finish taking a break and get back on the wagon. Before he joins them, Takeshi Ogura says grimly that maybe the government will put off joining the TPP, but he seems resigned to the final result. The only reason we struggle on like this is that we have these ancestral lands. But if the rice prices go down, that's the time I'll finally have to abandon the land. We're just at the brink right now. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News. The French Senate has voted to ban beauty pageants for children under 16. The measure is part of a larger bill on women's rights. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that lawmakers say the move is meant to protect young girls from being sexualized. Several documentaries about child beauty pageants in America have shocked the French in recent years. The phenomenon is largely viewed as a sordid offshoot of American culture. Psychiatrist Jean-Paul Pinera, speaking in the French television documentary Mini Miss Phenomenon, explains why the pageants are harmful. They give a very sexualized image of kids who aren't even in puberty, he says, and in doing so contradict the normal and harmonious development of a child. Mini-miss pageants, as they're called in France, with heavily made-up, dressed-up young girls, are fairly new here. If it's up to Senator Chantal Juano, who sponsored the amendment in the Senate, they could disappear altogether. The problem with these pageants is they're only based on appearance and the ideas of feminine seduction. So the little girl who takes part believes that her worth is based only on how she looks. Juano's amendment is part of a broader bill on women's rights, which will now proceed to the National Assembly, the French Parliament's lower house, for another vote. If it becomes law, it could mean a three-year prison term and $40,000 fine for anyone organizing or entering a child under the age of 16 in a pageant. But even without American-style mini-miss pageants, French girls are bombarded with the message that female worth is all about beauty and sexiness. All you got to do is watch TV, open a magazine, or look at the side of a news kiosk. Grown-up female nudity is everywhere. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Many people dream of visiting Paris. Others dream of Venice. People in China now have the opportunity to visit both those places in the same afternoon. 
Developers there have been building residential communities that mimic famous European cities down to the roof tiles. Scores of these communities exist now, and they are the subject of a new book. NPR's Frank Lankford recently took the grand tour of copycat communities in coastal China's Zhejiang province. So I'm standing in a field kind of on the edge of a swamp, and I'm looking up at a replica of the Eiffel Tower. It's more than 300 feet tall, and it's part of a a development here that's supposed to be kind of a mock-up of Paris. And beyond the Eiffel Tower, you can see this very authentic-looking French architecture. Uh, Buildings with mansard roofs, they have little chimneys on top, balconies. But the one thing is there are not that many people here. Xie Tingjian brought his business here three years ago. He sells clothing on the Internet. Xie's office looks out over the main thoroughfare, which is lined with trees, street lamps, and dry fountains. This place is called the Champs-Élysées. We are at number 64, Champs-Élysées. It's quiet. No one is here. This faux Paris, called Sky City, was built in 2006. But it never attracted the businesses or people developers hoped for. Xie, who wears a T-shirt that reads, When You Have Nothing to Lose, says he chose the community because of the cheap rent and the aesthetics. It's very special because all the architecture is in the European style, not like average Chinese residential complexes. It's very beautiful. One reason more people don't live here is the location. It's a 40-minute drive from downtown Hangzhou, the nearest big city. The community also has a rundown, creepy feel. There are fake storefronts for a non-existent coffee shop and an advertising office. Here's a sign in front of the advertising office. It says, advertising desing is visual communication art and designate value. Um, it's all misspelled. It's actually indecipherable. And uh, it seems as though whoever wrote this figured that most people here can't read English, so it doesn't matter. There's even a truck that drives around the Eiffel Tower spraying water on the road and playing this. What were the developers thinking? They won't say. When I went to their offices, I was told the bosses were busy in meetings, which is Chinese for, I don't want to talk to you. Yen Xuanren is a senior agent at the local Century 21 office. He says the development isn't the ghost town it seems, and that most of the apartments are occupied. The original plan was very good, building this into a residential area, and when people started flowing here, building a commercial district. The developers thought a subway line was coming to the front of the complex. But a subway never materialized, nor did the rich people developers expected. Most of the villas, some priced at more than $800,000, still sit empty. As an architect, I feel it's very strange. Tong Ming is a professor of urban planning at Tongji University in Shanghai. For our profession, it's really shameful to copy uh, something from somewhere else. Tong says developers began building copy communities as Chinese cities and home ownership took off. They didn't know what consumers wanted and needed to lure them in. Most developers, they are not so confident uh, in terms of uh, the product, the market. So the most uh, guaranteed way is to (laughs) try to provide them the most uh, familiar things. Of course, there is a long history of borrowing in architecture. Consider all those Corinthian columns on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Tong says the problem with China's copy communities is they're just knockoffs. There's no innovation. I'm Bianca Bosker, and I'm the author of Original Copies, Architectural Mimicry in Contemporary China. Bosker spent several years researching copy communities and speaking to residents. 
She says some see higher-end developments as a way to show off their new wealth and taste. They're selling not only this Western knockoff home, but I think they're also selling the dream of a better life. There's a sense that you can be a bureaucrat, you can be uh, an entrepreneur, and you can live like a king. As recently as the 1990s, most urban Chinese didn't even own their own homes. The government assigned them musty communist work unit apartments. Today's copy communities are light years from those days. Again, Bianca Bosker. A lot of people dismiss them. They think that they're ugly. They think that they're tacky. But I think that what these communities are testament to is the incredible amount of personal choice that Chinese consumers have. About an hour's drive from fake Paris, about a dozen retired women are dancing outside to the 1990s hit Moving On Up. This isn't unusual. In China, retired women dance all the time for exercise. Except this group is on the edge of a huge replica of St. Mark's Square in Venice. This is Venice Watertown, and it's filled with Italian-style villas with balconies and ochre-colored walls. The dance leader introduces herself as Teacher Xie. She came here for the clean air and the Western architecture, which she associates with sophistication. When I was working as a teacher, I thought Western teaching methods were more advanced, she says. So she bought a Western-style home. When we renovated our apartment, it was entirely in European style. The furniture we bought was European, the lights and other fixtures are close to that, and all the paintings on the walls are oil paintings. Fake Venice, which is near a subway stop, is much more successful than fake Paris. In the evenings, people sit on park benches overlooking the canals and chat by the light of street lamps. BMWs, Porsches and Volvos line the road. There are surreal touches. Part of St. Mark's Square has been turned into a basketball court, and the Doge's Palace doubles as a dorm for workers at a nearby amusement park. None of this seems to bother the locals. Leo Shengdi, a fellow dancer, recalls the first time she saw Venice Watertown. Wow, I said this complex is too beautiful, she says. It totally looks like a painting. How are they able to design such beautiful houses? Tongming, the urban planning professor, thinks copycat communities may be just a phase. As more Chinese travel abroad, the novelty of foreign architecture is wearing off. And Tong hopes in the future, more developers will come up with more original ideas. Frank Langford, NPR News, Shanghai. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Ted Clark.